Support for this podcast is provided by 360 Coverage Pros. If you're in the market for professional liability insurance, then our sponsor, 360 Coverage Pros, has what you're looking for with their top-rated tax preparer and bookkeeper professional liability insurance. They offer flexible coverage options starting as low as $23.33 a month. You'll love their fast, easy, online application and instant proof of insurance. To get started, you can call them at 833-668-0037. That's 833-668-0037. Or visit 360coveragepros.com slash tax notes to apply online or book a free consultation. That's the number 360coveragepros.com slash tax notes. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, mini-budget, big changes. With a new Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer in place, the UK government set out a series of new tax proposals. The September 23rd presentation of the so-called mini-budget followed through on promises Prime Minister Liz Truss made during the Conservative Party leadership contest, but the scope of the proposals led to turmoil in the currency and debt markets. So to learn more about what was in the mini-budget and what effects it will have, we're joined by Dan Needle, a former partner at Clifford Chance and now the founder of Tax Policy Associates, an organization that seeks to provide advice to policymakers in the UK and beyond. We'll get to that interview in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Carl Frieden, Vice President and General Counsel at the Council on State Taxation, about his article on sales taxation of digital business inputs. But first, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you doing? So first off, could you start us out with some background of why we got a new budget proposal from the government? So life used to be simple. There was a budget every March. The finance bill would drop on our desks a few weeks later, sometimes a few days later. It would become law in June, July. That was it. Life was simple. And then things started to get more complicated. We had budgets in the autumn, budgets in the spring, fiscal events here, fiscal events there. And now it, it almost feels like a round-the-clock, non-stop succession of mini-budgets. That's what this was, a mini-budget and one that was prompted by the fact that we have a new leader of the Conservative Party and a new Prime Minister in Liz Truss. Could you tell us a bit about the process? The Conservative Party was choosing a new leader, and it seemed that tax played a role in the back and forth between the two leading candidates. It absolutely did. We've had something of a consensus in tax for really the last 12 years or so, that when the Conservative government under David Cameron came in in 2010, they pretty quickly scrapped the Labour Party's 50 pence top rate and reduced it to 45 pence. Other than that, they haven't really touched the essential progressiveness of the tax system. They've done, in their various guises, Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, they've done things that many people on the left do not like, Brexit chief among them, and they have changed the tax system or failed to change the tax system in ways that can be criticised for being insufficiently progressive. But that aside, I think they've accepted the basic progressivity of the UK tax system. That, however, became an issue during the leadership election. You had Sunak, very much representing a continuation of what had gone before, unsurprisingly, given he was Johnson's chancellor. But Liz Truss was taking a rather more radical approach. She was not just saying that tax cuts were a 
good thing in principle, which pretty much any conservative would say at any given point. She was saying that taxes should be cut now. And she didn't seem that interested in how they were funded. And that was a, a rare bright line distinction between the two candidates, the like of which we haven't really seen in Conservative Party elections for some time. Now, on the question of how these tax cuts are funded, what is the budget situation of the UK government going into this budget? Is the budget in balance? Is there is it running a deficit? How, how are things progressing there? So the UK has been running a deficit for, for quite some time. I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to talk to the detail on this. Other than to note that as a legal matter, there is no constraint on UK budgets. So it's really down to politics and down to what the markets permit without going nuts. More on which, no doubt, we'll get to later. Sure. So then let's get into what was in this budget. So the budget contained some things that were expected and were not that controversial. Most significantly, a massive and very expensive series of measures to help with energy bills for both businesses and individuals. I'm not going to talk about those, partly because they're not my area of expertise, partly because they were uncontroversial. But they also contained a series of tax cuts, which went from the mildly controversial to, I think, fair to say, very controversial. And none of them were funded by tax increases elsewhere or spending cuts elsewhere. And that's very unusual because there's been a generally accepted bipartisan agreement that, at least on the face of it, major tax and spending changes should be zero sum. And this wasn't. So what are the the specific changes? What would you say was the most controversial change they chose? So the most controversial was eliminating the 45 pence top rate of income tax, which applies on incomes over 150,000 sterling. And that was scrapped, meaning the top rate is now 40%, which applies broadly on incomes over about 50,000 sterling. Now, that was hugely controversial, mainly for its symbolic power. The actual economic cost of that was relatively small, according to the Treasurer's projections, costs about £2 billion a year to scrap that rate, which in the context of a UK budget or something like a billion all in, that's not very much money. This was the rate that at one point was 50 pence under the Labour government. Correct. It was very briefly 50 pence. For, for most of the Labour government, from 97 to 2010, they accepted and didn't change that the top rate was 40 pence. Then just at the very end, when Gordon Brown knew he was in dire danger of losing an election, he increased or rather created a new top rate, first of 45 pence, and then before it was even introduced, increased it to 50 pence. And this was widely seen as triangulation to create difficulty for the Conservatives. So it was 50 pence for about 18 months. Then the Conservatives in 2012 brought it down to 45 pence, where it stayed ever since. Now, I see there were some other measures aside from tax rates in this mini budget, like abolishing the Office of Tax Simplification. What is the reason for that? The stated reason was that the government wanted deeply to improve the simplification of tax, which is a counterintuitive thing to say. They said that they would be embedding the virtues of tax simplification throughout HMRC and the Treasury. It's probably reasonable to say that HMRC should pay more attention to simplification on new measures, but it's not really realistic to expect them to be looking back, taking a holistic view of the tax system and thinking about simplification for existing measures. And that's what the Office of Tax Simplification did. And I think 
most professionals mourn the fact it's going. So was that office fairly effective in its work? Opinions differ. It produced some fantastic pieces of analysis, which are very useful to me and other people working in this space. It made some useful changes. It's probably fair to say it was unable to make any really consequential changes. And the reason for that is simple, that most tax complexity is ultimately down to policy decisions. And those policy decisions are usually driven by politics. Changing those is hard. So if you want to be harsh on the Office of Tax Simplification, it failed to do anything significant because it wasn't a political body. And possibly that's why it's being abolished. I, I'm really not sure. Are they doing anything concrete to embed this notion of tax simplification in, or is it more of an aspirational statement that they're making? I haven't seen anything concrete. It's a great question. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. The lack of qualified candidates continues to cause issues in the profession, but progressive firms are empowering admin with tax automation software to do the heavy lifting. The SafeSend suite will save your admin staff hours on assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, saving money, and making staff happier. And your staff deserve the sweet life this coming busy season. Schedule a demo to experience this workflow automation solution for yourself at SafeSend.com. That's SafeSend.com. We should probably talk about some of the other tax cuts. So one of them was reversing a national insurance increase from last year, national insurance broadly equivalent to social security. And that was essentially a two and a half percent increase of tax on wages. And that's being repealed. And that costs something like 18 billion a year. So, so now we're getting into serious money. Then there was another significant change, which goes to corporation tax. Now, corporation tax has had a complicated history in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, corporate tax was normally 33%. Then it fell to 30%. Then it began something of a precipitous decline all the way to where it is now, 19%. And so lots of people will talk about a race to the bottom in corporate tax if they didn't like it, or talk about a wonderful corporate tax cutting agenda if they did like it. The problem with both of those positions is they're wrong. Everyone hearing this can't see me move my finger, but the rate of tax did go down like this, he said, dropping his finger precipitously. But the effective rate of tax corporates paid, looking at the total tax paid by corporates divided by the total corporate profit in the economy, that just kind of wobbled along, not doing very much. The total revenue raised by corporate tax as a proportion of GDP also wobbled along, not doing very much. How could this be? No great mystery. The rate went down the tax base expanded. So really, corporate tax is a story of the dog that didn't bark. Not much has really happened to it, big picture. But that 19% rate has a lot of symbolic power. And one of the last decisions on tax of the Johnson government was to say that given the fiscal difficulties the country's in, and I think this was even before the energy crisis, that this was just looking at the effects of the pandemic, that 19% rate should go up to 25%. And they set that and they created a special allowance in the meantime to avoid people deferring expenditure to get more of a benefit from it from, from a higher rate. And we were all set to the 25% rate, but in the mini budget, that was scrapped. And that loses about 18 billion a year in revenue. Now, was that increase in the headline rate 
was that going to also have a narrowing of the base or was that just a straight increase? No, uh, th that's the thing. It's an increase. So it's not going back to where things were once upon a time when the rate was 25%. It represents a really significant actual increase in corporate tax. So now that's back at 19% for the foreseeable future. Well, here, here's the thing. When you have decisions on rates made with such frequency, they cease to be made for the foreseeable future. They, they start to be rates which are seen by everyone involved, particularly business, as rates that are just here for the short term. So all things being equal, would you increase investment by cutting a rate from 25% to 19%? Sure, I don't know how much, I'm not an economist, but it's very plausible it would. If, however, you reduce it, well, you increase it from 90 to 25, then before it even happens, you bring it back to 19, and it's very controversial, and the government doesn't look awfully stable, then are people really going to make investment decisions on the basis of 19%? Color me extremely skeptical. Okay, and uh, you have a, a tax that I'm not particularly familiar with, the stamp duty land tax. First of all, what is it and, and, and what's happening there? Yes, so stamp duty was one of the oldest taxes. Um, I mean, the Americans famously didn't like it, which is one of the reasons you're American. It used to be a tax on documents because before the modern centralized state, one of the few things governments could tax effectively was official documents. Over time, it's changed in almost every possible way. And now stamp duty land tax really just has those words, stamp duty, to reflect its history. What it really is, it's a tax on purchasing real estate. That's all it is. It's a very unpopular tax because if you are looking to buy a house or an apartment, then to see a price in a realtor's window, to expect to pay that price, and then have to pay stamp duty on top is a bit of an insult. And when you get financing from a bank, that generally won't cover the stamp duty element. So stamp duty is very unpopular, and governments love fiddling with it, either temporarily in what's often called a stamp duty holiday in times of economic difficulty, or in this case, that they've permanently reduced it. All right. So one other change I see happened was a rollback of new rules for disguised remuneration. Could you tell us about that? IR35 remuneration, a murky mess. And I'll try and race through it without causing everyone listening to switch off their computers in frustration. So the UK tax system has a few really bad systemic problems. And one of them is that we tax employment income more heavily than other types of income. Now, if you are a straightforward employee, an associate at a law firm, say, then that doesn't matter much. You're an employee. Nothing can be done about it. But for many people, it's a question of fact and degree whether you really are an employee. Take an IT consultant. They might spend six months at one bank, six months at another corporation, sometimes more, sometimes less. Are they an employee or not? Well, if they're not an employee, they save broadly 13, 14% tax. The employer's national insurance that doesn't apply. And some of them tried to get an even better result on this, that became almost universal in the contractor world, by providing their services via a company rather than as individuals. And that meant they could time when they took dividends out of the company, they got absolute savings on national insurance. There was at one point a very, very large difference indeed. So to stop this, government enacted IR35, which very broadly says that if your arrangement looks like employment, big picture, then it's going to be taxed like employment, no matter what the legal form is. 
And that was a big deal. And it made life quite hard for contractors who had to operate it. And in HMRC's view, many of them didn't operate it properly and didn't pay the tax that was due. So in 2017, the law was changed that instead of contractors having to decide whether to operate these rules, the onus became on the employer if the employer was a government body. And then in 2020, it was increased and expanded from government employers to all employers. When the onus is on the employer, it means two things. First, it means that individuals don't have the option to duck out of paying tax that is properly due. Second, the natural instinct of most large employers is to take a very prudent view and err on the side of caution. So whilst these two changes in 2017 and 2020 didn't actually change the substantive law around when IR35 applies, they changed who cared, and that made a big difference. That is now being scrapped, supposedly in the interest of simplification, and that will cost about £2 billion a year, and that's £2 billion of tax, which probably is due, but ain't being paid because the wrong person, in my view, is now responsible for paying it. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, this top-ranked innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information, and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Okay, so we now have this mini-budget that gets announced. How was the reaction to this budget with some of these controversial changes? So there was a furious reaction focused around, in particular, the high rate, the the, the top rate of 45p being abolished. This was seen, rightly or wrongly, as giving money to the high earning. And that was the political noise we were hearing. In the background, there was market disquiet at the large unfunded nature of these tax cuts. And we're talking about 40 billion or so a year, which in the context of the UK budget is a significant sum. And we started seeing the gilt market and the foreign exchange markets take a decisive turn, indicating that they did not welcome this development. And that created the perception the UK was heading towards a crisis. I'm not going to comment on whether that was true or not, because I'm a tax lawyer, not an economist, not a market specialist, but undeniably that that was the perception. Now, taking a step back for a second, there's a big difference between tax policy in the UK and tax policy in the US, which is that in the UK, the government gets to do essentially what it likes. It publishes a finance bill with its tax proposals. That is certainly debated in the House of Commons, but where a government has a majority, as this one most certainly does, little details here or there may change, but most of it just goes straight through, guaranteed. There is no ability for anyone other than the government to create tax legislation, and there's no ability for material amendments unless the government approves of them. So normally, something may be controversial, it may not be controversial, but it happens. This is different because within 10 days, that cut in the 45p top rate was reversed. 
which was kind of extraordinary. Now, what explanation did the government give when reversing that policy? They'd listened, they'd heard the disquiet, and they were prepared to change course. So it deals with the public condemnation. Is that also calming the markets that were worried about crisis? I think the perception is is yes. Again, I'm, I'm going to duck the question of, of really where market conditions are going because it's not something I've got expertise in. So now I'll turn to you as a tax person. If you had this power to make decisions and have very little input from others as you implement them, what changes would you like to see made to UK tax policy? So I'd focus on changes, which which I think don't cost money because I'm not foolish enough to think that I've got actual money I can spend on my magic tax proposals. But second, on changes that I think plausibly could drive economic growth. And third, changes that I think are not going to be ideologically controversial. So here's a few. First one, which, which I've been blogging about today, tax policy associates, we do tax policy, I wish I had associates. You, you'll see a posting about the UK's marginal tax rates, meaning if you earn X and then you have the opportunity to earn a thousand pounds more, how much of that thousand pounds do you keep and how much goes in tax? And we've got a few features of our tax system that means that the marginal tax rate can get to 68% at certain points. And if you have three children, there's one point where it can hit 90% which is extraordinary. There's even a couple of points where the marginal tax rate can hit infinity. If you take advantage of a government scheme for subsidizing your childcare, then that subsidy vanishes completely when your earnings hit £100,000. And if you have three children, that is going to cost you £6,000. And to get that money back, you would have to earn not £101,000, you'd have to earn £120,000 to be in the same place you were at £99,000. Now that is irrational. And it's clearly a disincentive to people taking on more work, getting promotions, working more hours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we need to smooth out these discontinuities and eliminate these marginal rates. That's the first change I'd make. Second change I'd make, similar theme, VAT. So companies have to be registered for VAT and charge 20% VAT on, on their sales when their turnover hits £85,000. So again, you're, you're a plumber, you've got £84,000 of revenue, you're not having to charge VAT to your customers. You could do one more job, then you'd earn £85,000, you'd have 20% to pay to HMRC. You could increase your prices by 20%, that's not going to go down well. Or you could swallow the cost yourself, you're not going to like that either. So there's very good evidence that businesses slow down their growth at the 85000 point. You, you, you can chart the numbers of businesses at each point in the turnover in, in, in the turnover scale. And again, apologies to those of you um, who can't see this, which I think is everyone but you, Dave. But the chart, lots of small companies, slightly, slightly fewer with a larger turnover, going all the way down to really very few large companies. You should have a nice, neat curve. But actually, the curve drops down, hits £85,000, the VAT turnover threshold, boom, falls like a cliff and then keeps going. So it really looks like the VAT system is a break on the growth of some companies. And that's a problem. My third slightly contradictory plea is stop making changes. Too many changes to the tax system, particularly changes around rates, changes around incentive allowances, investment allowances, and so forth. No business is going to plan 
on the basis of any feature of the tax system unless it believes it's going to be there long enough for to, to actually be caught by its plan. We, we saw this with some allowances in the government's windfall tax. It was only here till 2025. They had an investment allowance built into it. But 2025 is not that very far away. And building oil and gas machinery, building an offshore platform, takes an awful lot more than two years from, from drawing board to actual construction. So what is going to be incentivized by a two-year allowance? And the answer, I think, is, is little or nothing. So can we please, please, please stop changing these allowances, instead commit credibly to rules, reliefs and allowances that will be there for the long term. And that may well involve cross-party agreements, some kind of royal commission or other grand body so that everybody accepts and believes that some fundamental features of the tax system are going to stop changing, please. I can definitely see the advantage of, of some stability. Dan, thank you very much for being here. Uh, this has been great. Dave, thanks a lot. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Jeffrey Cadet examines the lessons in the ongoing Whirlpool litigation. Three tax professionals examine investment expensing, and they explore why businesses are not taking advantage of it. In TaxNet State, Amy Nogid and Tiffany Lee Chu discuss the potential impact of state business qualification on jurisdiction. Michael Lurie questions the constitutionality of the multi-state tax compact and the corresponding U.S. Steel decision that upheld it. In Tax Notes International, Kostas Mihail suggests a resource rent tax on European petroleum companies to stabilize high energy. Hale Shepard examines a pending U.S. District Court case about penalties for failure to report receipt of foreign gifts and its broader implications for U.S. taxpayers with international issues. In Featured Analysis, Carrie Brandon Elliott explains that coordination of Sections 959, 316, and 312 is a priority. On the Opinions page, Ryan Finley examines recent developments in transfer pricing litigation. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is TaxNote State Editor-in-Chief Jan Rauschasender. Thank you, Paige. I'm here with Carl Frieden, Vice President and General Counsel for the Council on State Taxation. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Let's chat about your Tax Note State article titled, Down the Rabbit Hole, Sales Taxation of Digital Business Inputs, which you co-authored with two cost colleagues, Senior Tax Counsel Fred Nisley and Legislative Tax Counsel Priya Nair. How did you get interested in doing a study on the sales taxation of digital business inputs? Well, this is a topic I've been interested in for about 25 plus years, and I actually had, had uh, written sort of the initial book that was ever written on the taxation of the internet. It was about 25 years ago called Cyber Taxation. So always been interested in the topic. But, you know, recently there at the state level, there's been, you know, a much greater focus on should states, and if so, how should states tax digital goods and services? And many more states are sort of expanding their tax base. And then that process, I think, is starting to accelerate as Groups like the Multi-State Tax Commission, you know, are launching into a project, and in, in their case, to do a, a, 
a, a broad white paper on you know how how states are taxing digital commerce now and and what are some of the options and you know in, in terms of how they should or shouldn't do it. So volumes were written about the topic. The the particular article that we wrote and I had co-authored this article with two cost colleagues, Fred Nicely and Priya Nair, and the the the. the the information that we looked at was what we thought was sort of a gap in the analysis in the the research and literature on this, and that is not just how are states taxing digital goods and services, which ones are they taxing or not taxing, but looking more specifically at the issue of are they taxing B to C, you know, you know, business to consumer, or are they taxing B to B, business to business transactions, and that was sort of the information gap that we were trying to look at. It is an excellent, robust article, as we discussed. In the article, you write that the U.S. approach to imposing a sales tax on digital products without a broad exemption for business inputs is unique among the major consumption taxes in the world. Virtually all other advanced nations use a value-added tax that avoids taxpayer mating through a credit provision. Would you explain a little more on how other countries tackle the sales or consumption tax on digital business inputs and how you'd like for the U.S. to respond. Yeah, and maybe if I could just start with just summarizing the conclusions that we reached in our study, and then that'll lead me directly into your question. I mean, what we found was of the 47 states that tax, you know, either software, digital goods and services at either the state and local level, there's only a handful of them that exempt B2B transactions. Iowa does it, you know, sort of with a robust exemption. And then Washington, New Jersey, Connecticut do it with, you know, partial exemptions. So it's very clear cut what's happening in the U.S. And we, we think from a policy perspective, it's the wrong thing to do. And so it, it helps to look then at what the rest of the world is doing, because there is no real disagreement among sales tax or consumption tax experts as to what a well-designed consumption tax looks like, you know, and that includes how a consumption tax, like a sales tax or a VAT, should address digital goods and services. And so if you look at what the rest of the world's doing, they're following sort of the norms of a good consumption tax, which is to tax consumption once, to not have pyramiding of taxes, and where possible to tax consumption, which is purchased by end users and households. And so the way that the rest of the world does it, and this is standard really across the world, is that the tax bases generally include both purchases by businesses and end users of digital goods and services, but to the extent that the end users are taxed under a VAT on the digital goods and services, then the purchases by businesses which have been taxed are then credited back. So effectively, they have an exemption for most business purchases of digital goods and services. And the reason, again, is so you avoid pyramiding. You only impose a consumption tax once. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we do it almost the opposite, which is those states, and it's not all states, but those states that tax some or all of digital goods and services tax both B2C and B2B, leading, unfortunately, to a pyramiding the tax in a way that you know cuts against any norms of a good consumption tax. Absolutely. All excellent points. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Carl. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Before I let you go, where can listeners find you online? Just through cost.org is the website. And also, if you go to cost.org, all of the different studies that we've done, all the articles that I've worked on or others at cost have worked on are all there online. So that's the best place to go to, to find things. 
Excellent. You can find Carl, Fred, and Priya's article online at taxnotes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.